I had a pastor friend of mine, he was my mentor really, who when he retired, I asked, what do you look forward to the most in retirement? And he said, never having to preach another worldwide communion sermon. What does that mean, I asked. Well, the reality of worldwide communion versus the ideal is so far apart, I've never yet been able to figure out how to preach it. The vision, however, is always before us at this table where we gather in reconciliation and communion together. Think about it, all over the world, Christians are gathered today sharing in the Eucharist. They've already gathered and shared on the eastern side and they are gathering and sharing as we go west. It's a powerful image of who we are together as one body in Christ. And I wanna thank Steve Whirlin and his presentation to us all weekend about this. He has to go meet an airplane. They were actually here at 8.30 service in case you're keeping score thinking they're skipping out. They have already worshiped. I wanted to thank him publicly for this church, for his amazing ministry to us. Uh, As I'm reminded by my sweet wife, Anita, it's not always about me, but I have to share a confession. Whenever I'm around people like Steve Whirlin, I feel guilty. His life, complete life, devoted to this incredible ministry. And it it sort of forces me to have to think back on what am I doing in this regard in a better or maybe more sustainable way. Last week I preached a sermon on reconciliation. No surprise, since that's our mission, a movement for reconciliation. And I got a lot of positive feedback. In fact, one person even said, I don't wish this on you, but if you could have an appendectomy before every sermon, your preaching would be better. (laughs) The point making, many of you emailed me or spoke to me about how important that sermon was. And as I try to understand why, it was really a kumbaya sermon. It was a reunification sermon that we work toward each other in coming together as one body, even though we don't all agree. And the spirit of God is that which brings us together and that we live out of the vision of that gathering through the promise of God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ. So I think, you know, for Worldwide Communion Sunday, I could just end there and let's gather at the table and hold hands and sing Kumbaya or even better, that Coke commercial, I wanted to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Remember that commercial? Um, But I can't just end there. I've got to go a little bit deeper. The truth is that reconciliation on the vision end, on the back end, is beyond our imagination. It is so full of, of the kingdom of God. Yet the truth is to get there is hard work and it takes much struggle. It comes only when the truth is told and when justice is done and when there is mercy and when there is peace. It comes when we are willing to face the truth within ourselves and in our world, in our country, in our church to look at ourselves honestly and to see where in our lives 
things need to be cut off, cut back, separated, that reduce us and prevent us from being the kind of human beings God created. Jesus was always trying to teach his disciples just this and us. And he was willing to do or use hyperbolic language like today's text. If you haven't read today's passage, then you might be surprised at what Jesus says to those disciples. In the 10th chapter of Matthew, verses 34 through 39, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Really? It's Worldwide Communion Sunday. Really? I had to use this passage on world. Really, Jesus, did you have to say this to those disciples? And did, did Matthew have to put it in the Bible? I mean, for us, the family unit is, in fact, so important. But in the day of Jesus, for the Hebrew family, it was generational. You never left home. One generation after another would stay in the family and do the work of shepherding or agriculture. As you, that's why you had sons, to continue that process. And Jesus is saying in this unbelievable language, if you are not willing to leave your father or mother or family, you're not worthy of me. I've come to bring peace, no, but a sword. Maybe he's just trying to coach us, as he was trying to coach them, to caution us about the easy fix and the sense that reconciliation can just happen with a snap. Maybe he's just trying to explain to us that some things need to be let go of before we can actually find true reconciliation, and that it never comes without a cost. For if anything is true, it is that, as God has made clear, the reconciliation of the world in Jesus Christ does not come without a cross. There is always suffering in it. It takes surrender, and it takes giving up, and it takes being willing to get out of the way and to cut off all of those things in us that stands in the way of God, ourselves, and each other. Someone once said that the truth will set you free, but before then it hurts like the devil. And I think that the sword of Jesus' truth is just that way. The word is a two-edged sword, it says in the New Testament, and what it means by that is 
in every conceivable way, it cuts us to the quick, but also cuts away all of that baggage that we drape around ourselves to hide behind. You know what I mean, those illusions of goodness and righteousness, those idolatries that we keep stored up in our pocket, safe and out of the way, our confirmation biases, our rationalizations and addictions, mostly our egos, God, our egos, our false sense of importance, our busyness, even it cuts away our shame and our guilt if we are using it to define who we are or to hide ourselves behind. It cuts it away. So before we can get to kumbaya and holding hands of reconciliation, we need to spend a little time underneath the knife. Now you probably know where this is coming from. Two weeks ago, I was there having an appendectomy. It's the only time in my life since my tonsils I've ever been in the hospital and the only time I've ever had surgery. But it struck me on one side of either going in or coming out, I can't remember, that this is exactly what faith is like. Not only am I giving myself up to someone or someones that I have faith in to take care of me, but I am also having to experience something being cut out of me that was no longer useful, my appendix, an appendage. For whatever evolutionary reason, it no longer works the way it was meant to, and it now tends to get inflamed and to infect us and make us sick. And when Jesus is saying, I have come not bearing peace but a sword, what he is saying is that my truth is just like that, to cut away from you all those places and things in your life that tend to get inflamed and only make you ill. It's a spiritual scalpel. And as I began to think about this, it occurred to me how all over the New Testament, this is clear. If your eye causes you to sin, Jesus says hyperbolically, pluck it out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your hand causes you to steal, cut it off. When the kingdom of God comes, there will be separation, not unity, between the wheat and the chaff, between the sheep and the goats. A rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, how can I find the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Honor the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, and soul, father, and your uh, da, 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 mother, father. Yeah, I've done all that, he says. And Jesus says, okay, well then cut yourself off from all your wealth. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler hangs his head and goes away because he knows he can't. Which is not to say that everybody needs to get rid of their riches, but it is to say that if those riches, just like if those parenting or our children are the major emphasis in our life that stands as more important than our relationship with God, Jesus says, cut it off. For only in our relationship with God can we have real, whole, healed relationships with ourselves and with each other.
Before we can get to Kumbaya, we need a little surgery. Richard Rohr, the popular Franciscan monk, calls this the path of descent. He says, the path agreed upon by all the monks and hermits and mystics and serious seekers was a path path of descent, an almost complete rejection of the ego's desire for achievement, performance, success, power, status, war, and money. All the things that some people might say is what we need to make America great again. This puts the Bible in a completely different category than most of the other world literature because it consistently gives, watch this, the victim, the suffering, the privileged position reaching full expression in Jesus himself. We talk about the power of God. We proclaim the power of God. We lift high the cross. We have Jesus high and lifted, but the whole understanding of the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is that God chose to descend into our suffering. And that's where that power is found. It's the way of the cross. And Jesus says, inasmuch as we're able to lift our own cross that way, are we able finally to find truth and reconciliation? Inasmuch as we're able to finally give up our life, or at least the illusion of our life, are we able going to find our life? It's completely counterintuitive. Sooner or later in our life, it will happen, of course, the knife. We will experience something that we cannot cope with. We might lose our job, a loved one, a marriage, we might stumble and fall in any other number of ways. Maybe we're just put out to pasture. Whatever it is, we are pulled out of the driver's seat of our life's vehicle and shown at that moment that, you know what? You're not in charge, ultimately. And that it never was about me to begin with. This is always the pattern of true life and growth, spiritual and emotional. At least it is for me, and I suspect for you. There is always this tragic component in life, but the gospel promises that not only is there meaning in it, and that not that God causes it, but that God uses it, that there is also the promise that that tragic dimension will turn into Easter Sunday. That's the promise. I don't know if you've been watching the Vietnam War documentaries by Ken Burns. It's, it's, a, it's a descent. In every conceivable way, it is a descent into the truth and untruth of what that war was and what it has done to us. And I think in a very fair way, he takes every conceivable side and tries to show us that the conflictedness of it, the fact that we are all in some way caught up in it and in some way, either by association or directly, we all share some guilt in it. As I watch the 18 hours of this, 10 different parts, after every single part, all I want to do is cry because it is so 
so tragic. Five different presidents deceived the American public about where we stood and where we were going in that war. Three of whom knew very clearly that it was unwinnable, yet they refused to pull back because they knew it would affect their reelection. 18 and 19 year old soldiers went to war and served faithfully, passionately. 58,000 some lost their lives. Hundred thousands more lost a limb or were injured. Three million North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese died, and that's the low count. As you watch the descent into that deep, dark place of our country, which some say is the most divisive event in our country's history since the Civil War, you are reminded that you know what? The residue of that still lingers. So Ken Burns and Kim Novick wanted to make this documentary 10 years in the making to give us a chance 50 years after. It always takes 50 years to begin the process of reconciliation of the war. I didn't serve. They did away with the draft my year, 1953. I had friends that served. I knew people who died. My guilt is that I tried to maintain a complete distance from the whole process. I would watch the news and just sort of say, yeah, well, that's over there. I was 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, but you know, that's over there. They have to go, I get a student deferment. I was mostly interested in girls and partying. Never did I lose a minute sleep over it until my best friend got drafted. And instead of choosing to go into the draft, he chose to join the Navy for six years. He's never been the same since. I was refusing to deal with the truth. But this documentary doesn't give us the option. If we watch it as painful as it is, we will discover this whole aspect of descending into the darkness. And then from that place, we will find reconciliation so deep, so profound, if we're willing to go there. Such is the way of God with us. We hide, we cover, we protect.